Please turn to Daniel chapter 11, verse 35. While you're turning, in one of his lighter moments, Benjamin Franklin penned his own epitaph. He didn't profess to be a born-again Christian, but it seems he must have been influenced by Paul's teaching on the resurrection of the body. Because here's what he wrote. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms, but the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. We're now at the end of Daniel's final vision that God sent the angel Gabriel with a message to explain to Daniel what the future held for his people Israel. This week we're going to look at the portion of those prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. This has got a grand sweep to it. This, this section of the final revelation to Daniel includes the career of the Antichrist, the tribulation, and goes all the way to the resurrection of the dead. So it's quite a sweep of history that we cover there. I've subtitled this, The Rise and Fall of the Antichrist, because he's the major player in this, but he's certainly not the only thing that it's about. His rise is the first thing we see, starting in verse 35, in the second half where it picks up, until the end time, because it's still to come at the appointed time. Then, the end time, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Suddenly we've got a jump here. The angel suddenly jumped from talking about Antiochus IV, who was a type of the Antichrist, to the end time events. And that's our, our clue there in verse 35 where it says, until the end time. So we jump over a lot of time and end up right on the career of the Antichrist. Now, some have tried to place these events in the past because they don't believe in valid Bible prophecy. They don't believe anybody could know the future, except God, of course. But anyway, Jesus Christ placed these events in the future. He referred to them in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation, etc. So Antiochus Epiphanes, who had been long dead and turned to dust by the time Jesus Christ came on the scene, could not have been the one to fulfill those prophecies. Now the then refers to the end time mentioned in the previous verse. And the king in view now is not Antiochus, but the Antichrist, who will do as he pleases. He'll get his way in the world. Now this verse tells us four things about the Antichrist. First of all, he will do as he pleases. There's a lot packed into that. He's going to consider himself above the law. That's why Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness. He'll be an absolute dictator. And he will initially achieve all that he sets out to achieve. Initially. He will succeed. What a contrast with Jesus Christ. 
who said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This fellow has come on the scene to do his own will, and he will succeed initially. Second, the Antichrist will claim to be God. Paul wrote of this also. He said that the man of sin, another name for the Antichrist, in 2 Thessalonians 2, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Imagine seeing that on the evening news. <laughs> Pretty horrible. Daniel's already revealed that. He, the coming Roman Antichrist, will confirm a covenant by many for one seven of years. And in the middle of the seven of years, he'll put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed that's poured out on him. The middle of the tribulation. John confirmed that. Since the nations or Gentiles will, con will tread underfoot, as it says in Revelation 11, the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. We've seen that number before? <laughs> yeah. Seems to figure prominently. Therefore, the desecration of the temple by Antichrist is going to take place at the midpoint of that last seven year time, the tribulation. At that time, Antichrist turns against Israel, but God's going to protect him, according to Revelation 12, for three and a half years. At the beginning of the tribulation, Antichrist will have made a defense pact with Israel. That's that firm covenant that it mentions in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. For seven years, but in the middle of that, he's going to declare himself God in the temple, break the defense pact, and turn on Israel and persecute him. The third thing it tells us about the Antichrist is he's going to blaspheme God by speaking monstrous things. The Hebrew word translated monstrous there is actually surpassing, extraordinary, presumptuous. Antichrist's blasphemous speech is going to consist of extraordinarily presumptuous words. He's not um, some garden variety blasphemer. He is going to be the blasphemer of blasphemers. Nobody, nobody tops him. It's been translated astonishing things, outrageous things, presumptuous things, unheard of things, incredible blasphemies, like never before. The little horn, another name for Antichrist in Daniel 7, is said to possess eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth, uttering great boasts. This guy is a big talker. Okay. Daniel predicted that the Antichrist would speak out against the Most High. And John writes of the Antichrist in Revelation 13, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. So you see how all scripture is lining up, but also you see how Daniel is like the seed plot for all of these things that spring up later in the Bible. It's awfully hard to understand Revelation without Daniel. <laughs> and they definitely, they definitely fit together. Uh, lastly, the Antichrist is going to be successful for a while. However, a definite limit has been set on him. It says here in the text, until the indignation is finished. Um, the Antichrist, again called the Little Horn in Daniel 7, will be waging war with the saints and overpowering them. According to Daniel 7.21. But when God's finished dealing with Israel for its rebellion, 
the Antichrist will be finished too. Daniel wrote that the Antichrist campaign against God's people would last until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. That's from Daniel chapter 7. If you want to read the other end of that, it's Revelation chapter 19 when, Je when Jesus and the armies of heaven come and put an end to the battle of Armageddon. We know from other prophecies, like Daniel 9.27, that Antichrist's career is going to be limited to seven years. Jesus said if that time hadn't been cut short, that no life would survive. That we would succeed in annihilating ourselves. But because it's been cut short, that's not going to happen. The worst of that seven years, that final week of the, uh, that's mentioned in Daniel 9, is the last three and a half years. And that's sometimes called the Great Tribulation because it's going to be so much worse than the first half. And that's when the Antichrist has comparatively free reign, authority to act, according to Revelation 13, for 42 months. For those who are reading this scripture and other scriptures during the tribulation, that has to be a tremendous comfort. I've got 42 months to go. You ever been a short timer on a job? You know, I got six months to go, five months to go, four months to go. You know, well, we're short timers. <laughs> And those during the tribulation are going to be short timers too. They're going to be able to say, I've got 42 months left. I've got 41 months left. 40 months left. They're going to be counting it down. I guarantee you. It's been uh, translated, he will succeed until the time the wrath is completed. That's it. The, thing, the tribulation is a time of wrath. For those of us in the church age, in the body of Christ, Paul has told us in First uh, Thessalonians, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. This is one of the reasons why I believe in the rapture. But for those who come to faith in Christ after the rapture, they find themselves in a time of wrath. And even with God's protection, it's going to be rough. They're calling out in the tribulation in Revelation 6, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him calling to rocks and, and mountains saying fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb I always thought that was one of the more ironic phrases in, in, in the Bible the wrath of the lamb anybody afraid of lambs? Yeah. well you should be there's one lamb who's also a lion you should be afraid of for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? The answer is only those who stand in, in God, you know. But those who don't have the Lord, they're not able to. Nevertheless, in all of this, God is sovereign. That which is decreed will be done. God's not bound by time. It's his creation. He's always known all things. Human beings make their decisions, but God's plan has already considered them. He's always a step ahead of you. And what God's decided is going to be done. Now the next verse elaborates Antichrist's blasphemous claims. He's going to show no respect to religious beliefs of his culture. The Hebrew word translated regard means observe, mark, give heed to, distinguish, consider with attention. 
been translated, he will show no respect or will pay no attention. Now, in paying no attention to the God of his fathers or the gods of his father, the Hebrew word translated gods there, Elohim, may be translated as either a plural or a singular. And uh, that's why the translations seem to be split on this, uh, depending upon what you have. You may be looking, if you have a new King James, for instance, or, uh, or a, uh, oh, um, or the Jewish translation, actually, the Tanakh by the Jewish Publication Society, they all translate it as singular, okay? New American Standard, NIV, etc., all translated as plural with a footnote that has singular. You know, uh, so you can have it either way. So if it's, the speculation is though, if it's singular, if it's meant to be singular, then the phrase, the God of his fathers, might indicate that Antichrist is Jewish. That's a possibility. However, if you think about it, it'd be true whether Antichrist's background was Christian, Muslim, or Jewish. It doesn't matter. It would still be come out the same way there. So I don't think it's a certainty that the Antichrist is, is, uh, is Jewish. I think actually the better candidate, if there's a, a Jewish person involved here, would probably be the false prophet of, of Revelation 13 that points people to the Antichrist. But... The second thing it tells us about his blasphemy is he has no respect for Israel, the temple, or the Messiah. And that's from that phrase, and this is kind of hard to understand too, where it says, um, neither will he regard the desire of women. Now, some have taken that to indicate that the Antichrist is a perverse person. Um, but the text doesn't say that. It literally says he will not regard what women desire. Um, that's been translated the one desired by women by some translations and um, therefore the translation is one had that he will have no desire for women is not accurate that is not what the Hebrew says so the Hebrew word for desire there is the key I think to understanding this and that's been used for several different things uh, it's been used in Psalms and Jeremiah and Zechariah to refer to Israel the desirable land um, Ezekiel has used a related Hebrew word to refer to the temple. So it could be the land of Israel, could be the temple that he would not have regard for. And it might refer to the Messiah, since all Jewish women would desire to be the mother of the Messiah. So there's a number of possibilities there. And I, as I meditated on this, I think that the angel may have been vague on purpose. Okay, and left this on kind of open to include all of those key areas of Jewish hope and expectation. Saying the Antichrist is not going to have, you know, any respect for that. So he's not going to respect his cultural uh, religious traditions. He's not going to respect Jewish expectation. And then thirdly, he's not going to have any respect for the religious beliefs of any culture. Because it says, or any other God. The Antichrist will denigrate all religions. Doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or a Catholic, he's going he's gonna to put you down. He will seek to establish a religion based on himself. That's been translated by one translation, he will not respect any god, he will elevate himself above them all. 
As Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And by, by the way, just to reinforce the impression that I have a keen sense of the obvious, the temple's got to be rebuilt, doesn't it? If he's going to desecrate it, it's going to be rebuilt. Um, so keep your eye on that particular hilltop in Jerusalem and see what happens. I don't know whether it will happen before we go poof through the roof, but uh, it may. They may rebuild it. So I, I, wonder, I used to wonder how that happened, but there are frequent rocket attacks and stuff. I can just see one of those Katusha rockets going astray, bullseyeing the Dome of the Rock. That would be irony in the uh, extreme if the Palestinians managed to blow up the Dome of the Rock. <laughs> but in either case, you know, that is a rock that's going to move. That's not a rock too big for the, uh, for the unstoppable force to move. And the temple will, will be rebuilt. Uh, it's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist, though, in the middle of the tribulation. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it'll be rebuilt, but it won't be an altogether good thing because the Antichrist is going to desecrate it. Now, the other thing it tells us here is that the Antichrist is going to worship a god of fortresses, a god of military might. That's his religion. His religion is he, worship, he worships force. He worships strength. This is a novel religion. It's not whom his fathers knew not. Antichrist will spare no expense in his pursuit of military strength. With the help of his god, military might, he's going to conquer. It's been translated claiming this foreign god's help, he would, he would conquer. The Hebrew word translated foreign here is from the same Hebrew root as acknowledge. And so you have a little play on words here. The Antichrist will conquer with the aid of an unacknowledged god. However, he will honor those who acknowledge him. Those who acknowledge him, he puts in political office. Puts in positions of power. And then the thing about the land, it appears there's some sort of land redisposition, redistribution, and that apparently also is going to favor his followers, his supporters. Now we know from Revelation that he's going to set up an economic system where you're not allowed to buy or sell unless you've taken his, his mark and allegiance to him. So this is, I think, more of that sort of thing. He will use, as well as military might, economic pressure and governmental pressure on those who, those who are not his followers. Now, that's his rise. There's a decline. And that begins with the wars that start taking place. And I, I believe these begin to happen around the midpoint of the tribulation. Starting in verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Eden, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. 
But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. What the angel's doing here is pulling back and reveal, the curtain and revealing to Daniel the military campaigns that take place in the tribulation. Note again it says at the end time. That's a, that's a definite time marker for us to know that we've left the um, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies behind. This conflict sounds like it's going to involve Egypt and Syria and the Roman Antichrist at least over Israel. And I think there are other players we know from other scriptures as well. Now, the king of the south has previously in this section always referred to Egypt. So I don't see any reason to take any other meaning here. It's always been referring to the Ptolemies in Egypt. The Hebrew word translated collide means to engage in thrusting, to, to wage war with. So there's going to be an, a thrust, if you will, of troops from the south, from Egypt. Uh, additionally, since the king of the north previously referred to Syria, it probably has the same meaning here too. And the regime in Syria is definitely no friend of Israel. The Hebrew word translated storm against there means to swirl or sweep away with wind. It's like a tornado, a whirlwind from the north. The attack is supposed to involve chariots, horsemen, and many ships. Now the word translated chariot here is, is interesting. It's the Hebrew word rekev. But if you um, take another form of that same word, it's Merkava. And Merkava is modern Hebrew for tank. Matter, matter of fact, that's um, the Israelis' brand of tank, is the Merkava. I think they're up to Merkava 4 now or something. <laughs> so pretty impressive tank. But it's, you know, that used to mean chariot, now it means tank. Okay, I, I, My conviction is when the prophets are seeing things that are future events that you have to realize this is a guy in the 500s BC trying to describe tank warfare. Yeah, how would he describe it? Well, some sort of chariot. <laughs> you know? That's why I think you have some of the stranger de uh, explanations or, or descriptions in the book of Revelation about uh, about chariots or hor with horses that you know they're the they have uh, heads that look like the tails of scorpions and they whip around and fire belches out of the mouth of it and and sulfur and brimstone you know and it's like okay think of a tank and the turret whipping around and firing you know if you were from the first century and had never seen anything but chariots how would you describe it yeah. Or an Apache helicopter. How would you describe that? Maybe a bit like a locust. Hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of things like that. But uh, it is ironic, I think, in the extreme that the word for chariot now has become the modern Hebrew word for tank, Merkava. Uh, the word translated horseman here is often used with chariot to denote the general idea of chariotry. Or, you know... Uh, 
perhaps in our case, tanks. Um, the phrase many ships has been translated a large armada of ships or a great fleet of ships. And if I can pull this all together, I think what he's saying is going to happen. Egypt and Syria are going to blockade Israel's coast. That's the large armada of ships. In an attempt to prevent the landing of, of the Roman troops, uh, the Antichrist, of course, has his defense pact with Israel that started the seven-year period. So he's obligated, you know, the Roman Empire's final form is obligated to invade and come to the help of Israel. And simultaneously, the North and the South, both Syria and Egypt, are going to launch a blitzkrieg, basically, on, on Israel. Now, this is a scenario that's not hard to imagine because haven't we seen very similar things play out many times? In Yom Kippur, the Yom Kippur War, for instance. That was exactly how it, how it happened. I know I got all excited at the time going, is this it? Is this it? <laughs> you know, okay, Lord. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it turned out not to be, but we've seen this scenario before. Um, now, since the Antichrist has that defense pact with Israel, he's got to respond. And it's going to provoke a response from the revived Roman Empire. See, the pronouns he and him here are still referring to the Antichrist. The Romans respond, and it, sa it says they're going to overflow. It's like an overwhelming force that sweeps away everything in its path. He's going to invade lands, passing through them, as one translation says, like an overflowing river. They're going to sweep into the land of Israel. And as before in Daniel, we've seen this twice already in chapter 8 and chapter 11, the, uh, the term beautiful land refers to Israel. The Romans defeat the forces arrayed against them. It says many will fall. And strangely, the Jordanians appear to have stayed neutral and stay out of the conflict. Um, now Israel does have a peace agreement with two Arab countries, Egypt and Jordan. You know, of course, Egypt apparently is going to break that at some point here. But, uh, but Jordan apparently stays out of the fight because Edom, Moab, and Ammon are all tribes that make up the modern state of Jordan. Uh, matter of fact, the uh, capital of Jordan is Ammon, and it's just a different spelling of Ammon. So these will escape, another translation says, Edom, Moab, and the Ammonite leadership. Antichrist is going to deal with Syria and continue on into Egypt, based on this text. He's going to plunder Egypt, and he's going to be at the point of attacking Libya and Ethiopia. And since Libya has oil and Egypt doesn't, I think Libya would be a choice target, right? Except that he hears alarming reports of truth movements from the north and from the east. Now, what's he going to hear from the north? Well, Libya, Syria are allies with Russia. Now, who knows what form Russia will be by then? <laughs> okay, um, Russia's tottering on the brink right now. I really, I really don't think Vladimir Putin totally understands this democracy idea. Uh, but you know, it doesn't actually matter whether they're communist, whether they're democratic. Democracies can do ugly things too. So it's not necessarily, you know, going to change anything in terms of history. Um, and 
terms of this history anyway. But he's going to hear reports, and from the north, I think, is probably the Russian army coming to support its allies, Syria, Ethiopia, Libya, and with its ally, Iran. And you can read all about that in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Uh, the players are pretty clearly identified. Persia even is mentioned by name. Uh, you just have to have a little bit of understanding that, uh, that Gog and Magog are actually trans and Rosh and Tubal and those, those tribes that are mentioned are actually tribes that were all around the north edge of the Black Sea and basically came together to form the modern state of Russia. So I think that's where Ezekiel 38 and 39 fits in. Now, Ezekiel 38, God promises that there will be a supernatural destruction of the invading army. I wonder if that destruction happens, the Antichrist is going to try to take uh, credit for it. I don't know. Uh, the report from the east would probably be the 200 million man army of the kings of the east that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 9 and chapter 16, uh, headed for the battle of Armageddon. Now, 200 million man army sounds pretty impressive. Um, you know, that's we have a country of what 330 million people. Um, the Chinese claim that their militia is over 200 million men strong that they actually could field an army that big. Um, which is an amazing thing to me. Uh, that's, they could, you know, one, chi one Chinese soldier for every one and a half people in the United States, they could guard us all personally. Of course, that would depopulate China, but, they, but still, they have, they have the manpower to do that sort of thing. The Antichrist will lose the battle. And this battle is going to be cut short by the personal return of Jesus Christ. John writes in Revelation 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, that is Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. In the end, this man who would be king, this man who would make himself God, will stand alone and defeated before God's Messiah. Which brings us to the fall, the end of the tribulation, and, and beyond. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, those, and those who lead many to the righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. 
At the conclusion of the tribulation, the archangel Michael arises in defense of Israel. There's already been a battle in heaven, according to Revelation chapter 12, between Michael and his angels, Satan and his angels, and that battle now spills over to earth. And there's going to be an unparalleled time of, dis of distress. This is going to surpass even World War II and the Holocaust. The Israelis that are found written in the book, or the Jewish people that are found written in the book of life, will be the ones who are rescued, Daniel says. Jeremiah prophesied, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Jesus said there will be a great tribulation such as not, has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Which is what tells me it's going to be worse than the Holocaust. God told Zechariah, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they've pierced. Who got pierced? Jesus Christ. Who's talking? God is. They will look on me whom they pierced. God was the one on the cross. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Thus, just as Paul wrote, And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Then the angel goes on to talk about the resurrection. and He's very careful how he states it here. He uses the word many and not all. Because the Bible doesn't actually teach one general, general resurrection all at once. There's several stages to this. Um, one Hebrew scholar has translated this. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise. Those who arise shall be unto everlasting life. But those who do not arise at this time, to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's two stages in what the angel's talking about here. Now actually the first resurrection was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, Paul said. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. The second resurrection, then, is those who have died in Christ before the rapture takes place. Now we have that in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, died, so that you do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Don't worry about your loved ones that have died. They'll beat you to the feet of Christ by a split second. Okay. Then after the tribulation... The 
Old Testament saints and those who are killed during the tribulation will be raised for the kingdom. John writes in Revelation, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So these are the ones that are resurrected to everlasting life. And then finally at the great white throne, the unsaved will be resurrected to stand judgment. And that's in Revelation 20. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, and from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which was in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the resurrection of the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Then he talks about eternal rewards just briefly. And the two groups that are especially rewarded are teachers and evangelists. Those who have insight, I think, refers to those who accurately teach God's word. And especially in the case of the tribulation, those who do so under threat of huge persecution and loss of life. Those who lead many to righteousness, I think, refers to evangelists. Since righteousness is only found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the angel compares the glory of those two groups with the stars in the heavens. Then the angel told Daniel to conclude the book and to secure its contents until the end times. The, the Hebrew word translated conceal here means actually to shut up, to keep closed. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean to hide. Uh, it's one, one, um, the word translated seal up means to keep it secure. We put a seal on things to keep them secure. So it's been translated, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Does not mean keep these words secret. Okay? God wanted his revelation to be published. The angel describes the end times as a time of increased transportation. Many will go back and forth. Look at our, look at our church over the holidays. <laughs> we are all scattering to the four winds. You know, many will go back and forth. The trip, you know, make a, make a trip to California, which, you know, or to Oregon or something like that. People would, in, in, in the 1800s, they'd do that once in a lifetime and they might not survive the voyage. You know? And it would take them months to get there. We do this in days. Or in hours if you can afford the plane. You know, so it's um, quite a difference. And it said that knowledge would increase. I know he does say knowledge would increase, not wisdom. And, uh, yeah, we have a lot more knowledge, but I don't know that we've got a lot more wisdom. It does sound very much like our times, doesn't it? You know? 
That sparked Daniel's question then. How long till the end? How long? Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, and two others were standing on, one on the bank of the river and the other on the other bank. One said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again your allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel noticed there were a couple of angels standing, one on either bank of the river. Might be a veiled reference to the biblical concept that at least two witnesses are required. I don't know. But one of these angels asked how long it would be until the end of these things. I think the person in, dressed in linen over the river was the pre-incarnate Christ. I think it was a theophany. And he swore solemnly that these events would last three and a half years. See, normally only one, one hand was raised in, in giving an oath. And that both hands were raised, it signifies that the oath is very, very solemn. We know from other scriptures that that time, times, and half a times, we've seen already in Daniel, uh, and we'll see again in verse 11, refers to three and a half years. It's going to be a time of the shattering of the holy people, a horrible time of persecution. Daniel, of course, was confused by this and asked what would be the outcome. And he's told, I think, basically, the best way to take that is that some things are better understood the closer you are to the event. And for Daniel, it would be hard to picture this. We see some things falling into line that we think maybe help us to understand it, but the people who will understand it best are those who are reading this in the tribulation. They, for them, it will be like reading the newspaper. He said that persecution would purify some... But the wicked would understand, and those who have insight, I mean, will not understand, but those who have insight will. James wrote, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that testing your faith produces endurance. There's a purifying effect to being persecuted. And the, James went on to say, Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It will indeed purify God's people. And even there, God uses the circumstances of even the tribulation to purify his people. It said, from the time that Antichrist breaks his treaty and sets up the abomination, there's going to be 1,290 days. Now, three and a half times 360 day lunar years is only 1,260 days. So what's the extra 30 days for? Well, 
There's a lot of conjecture about this, and Scripture doesn't tell me in no uncertain terms, so feel free to reject my conclusions here. But uh, perhaps 30 days are going to be required for the judgment. And there is a judgment of those Israelis that rebel against God, and there's a judgment of the Gentiles that didn't, that didn't have faith. So nobody goes into the millennium except for believers. Nobody goes into the kingdom. Um, so it's been commented, I think, in a good summary of this, that although Israel as a nation is delivered from their persecutors, individual Israelites still have to face the judgment of Christ as to their spiritual preparation to enter the kingdom. For Jew as well as Gentile, the issue is going to be, do you have eternal life? Now, the other number, the 1335, the Lord extended the time another 45 days. Perhaps that time is necessary to actually set up the machinery of government for the kingdom of God. I don't know uh, for sure. But that could explain those, those numbers. All who reach that point are definitely entering the kingdom of God. They are therefore blessed. And that's why it says, blessed is the one who attains to the 1335th day. And Daniel's finally told that he will die, that is rest. You know, he'll be raised again and take his place in the kingdom of God. I imagine that was a great comfort to him in his old age, to be told that. Now, how do we apply this? Well, all this study in the book of Daniel... Was it meant to just tell us what's going to happen around the turn in world events? Well, that's fascinating, but I don't think that's all there is to it. The message of the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign. Our world's crazy. <laughs> it was crazy in Daniel's day, and it's getting crazier. But God is sovereign. God is in control. As much as men think that they may be able to do something against him, they can't. And those who do not believe, there's a message to them. They must understand, they cannot defeat the sovereignty of God. If you don't believe, you're on the losing team. Rebellion against God cannot and will not succeed. They face the certain judgment of a holy God. And God's provided only one way of salvation, sovereignly. The Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross as an atonement for our sins. And the only way to be reconciled to a sovereign God is by simple trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Any other way that you cook up yourself is rebellion. Now those who do believe, and we need to trust in the sovereignty of God. The fact that God is in control should give us stability and assurance in our life. It did Daniel. That's what saw him through persecution and other trials, saw him through difficult times, was the faith that God was in control. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your revelation to Daniel. We thank you for this word that you are sovereign, that you are the king, you are in control of our world. We thank you and praise you for that. For truly we would be terrified if you weren't. Lord, we just pray that, that our hearts would rest in that fact, that we would trust you with our lives. 
In Jesus' name, amen.